Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Evan and Doug. How are you guys doing? Great. Good awesome. To be here. Great to be here. Thanks, Dennis. So the uh, reason why I asked you guys on is both you are, you are both uh, proven airway takers and experienced both in pre-hospital and hospital medicine. Um, so I think of the, the people that I know, um, I trust your opinion the most. So um, I have to kind of have a confession to make and being that this is my first live, so I'm going live with the entire earth. Um, this is a perfect time to confess my own sins. So um, I gotta be honest, I think that T-Tri-C is wrong in that uh, they're advocating for crike over intubation. And so let me give you some evidence. What I think is evidence for that is that intubation is what they do in the hospital. Why can I not do this in the field? Um, you know, experienced providers such as yourselves, uh, that's what's expected is that you intubate versus crike. And only in a rare occasion, you know, do they do a surgical cricothyroidotomy. Um, you know, in my own course, they teach intubation first. Thus, that must be uh, what they actually want me to do. Okay, and crike was really meant for an emergent that I couldn't intubate this patient. Intubation is less invasive. I don't have to slash open somebody's neck, which is obviously pretty dangerous to do. Um, crikes have a well, pretty high failure rate in the field. Um, so why don't I just do intubation? And even in uh, you know actual providers checklists of things to do in an emergency, you know after three attempts and you cannot uh, manual ventilate, that's when you do a surgical crike. So you know am I am I wrong in thinking um, things like this? Uh, Evans, what's you? What do you think first? So I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you on all that. Um, so if we'll start out, let's start out by looking at what resources the TCCC provider typically has available to them and then compare that to that hospital or even pre-hospital EMS environment that you're describing. So things that you need, you need an AT tube, you need a laryngoscope, you need medications. Um, usually at least a paralytic and some sort of induction agent followed by some sort of post-intubation sedation. But you need the ability to resuscitate the patient prior to intubation because we expect hemodynamic collapse. I think we'll get into that later. You also need suction. It would be malpractice mm -hmm. for me to intubate somebody in a hospital environment or EMS if they didn't have some kind of suction available. Uh, that would be really inappropriate, especially if you're talking about something like a traumatized airway. And I think we all know that the suction options available to our TCCC providers are not overwhelmingly awesome. So... 
you have a lot of things there. You also have, even if you're pre-hospital in the US, you have an expected timeline where you are pretty clear on how long you're going to be responsible for taking care of that patient, which we also, the whole point of this podcast is that we don't always know how long we're going to have to own a patient in an austere setting. So I think if you look at those for starters, you can say, um, there is a very different resource availability and that is driving the decision or one of the things that drives the decision to emphasize crike. Okay. Evan fell off the wagon, Doug, back me up. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, um, I, I'm going to straddle the line, um, and, um, be an advocate for both and, uh, a critic of both. Um, partially, mainly based on um, uh, environment, right? So what Evan um, just said, I think is absolutely true for the TCCC environment, the, the tactical um, uh, point of injury care um, away from uh, any away from the house level of PFC care or the role one level of, of, um, uh, of, um, medical care. The, for all the reasons that he said, you know, you just don't have the resources, uh, to safely, uh, um, perform induction, endotracheal intubation, um, resuscitation, um, if you have hemodynamic um, com um, complications of the um, intubation, which are most likely in the immediate um, in, in the immediate treatment, you know, if you're taking an airway at, in a T triple C environment, you know, chances are you're you've only begun to resuscitate your patient, um, and then you know sedation, you know, plus minus. Um, I think that. Uh, if you get to the role one level, um, you can be much more resourced. Uh, and then, you know, the points that you make about um, the success rate, um, the lack of morbidity in terms of a surgical incision in the neck, um, and the standard of care are, um, are much more applicable. Okay. All right. So at least I can work with Doug. He's halfway. Okay. So, um, but to both of you and I'll, and I'll let Evans answer first. The way I feel, at least when, when very smart providers like yourselves, you know, explain like, uh, why Crike is better. Maybe intubation is better. They talk about resources, um, things like that. I can get resources. Uh, the squid suction, it may not be the best, but it definitely works really well, especially when you prepare your gear. Um, I'm smart enough to have uh, things like uh, mismade. Um, I'm smart enough to have uh, the gear ready. I have the drugs. Okay, I'm carrying fentanyl, uh, ketamine, Versed. Um, maybe I have some kind of hydromorphone or something like that. So I can get the drugs. And it feels like the way the resource, the, the kind of the, the idea of, well, you don't have the resources, so it's okay to do this, is kind of like a nice way of saying, you're not good enough. So 
I can I can train on mannequins. I can I've worn them out. Um, I can get at least occasionally, you know, two weeks every two years, four weeks every four years, practice in an in a either an ICU or a surgical suite or an ER if I'm aggressive at least hunting that stuff down, which I should be. So I can get experience practicing on on actual living human beings and keeping them alive. So I guess what does it take for me to kind of build that confidence in my higher providers to finally let me practice like they practice? Well, I want to back up a minute on the resource thing because you're talking about carrying the meds. And I think this is really yep. important because um, when I am planning for prolonged field care potentially or critical care transport, one of the first things that I do is I look at a longest reasonable worst case scenario for how long I'm going to be responsible for X number of patients. And then you can calculate. So let's say we're talking about, you know, our normal average SF guy in terms of weight. And let's say we're only talking about one of them. So that guy is going to go through probably at least 100 micrograms of fentanyl and 100 milligrams of propofol or, you know, five milligrams of Versed every hour after that person has been innovated. So mm -hmm. a lot of guys have the ability to think through the ability to drop the patient with the RSI meds, and that's great. But when you start looking at the resource consumption of the post-intubation sedation, and that's not even taking into account all of the additional monitoring and support that you're going to have to be doing in terms of just man hours and attention. But if you just look at the rate, most guys have a hard time drawing more than like a bottle of ketamine or bottle of fentanyl. And that's a, a systemic problem, I think, within at least RSOF that I've seen is, you know, medics are kind of treated at least skeptically, if not like an outlet, right? criminal if they're trying to obtain large amounts of controlled substances, even if that fits the actual needs of the mission profile that they're looking at if they were seriously taking care of a patient. So I have very rarely seen a soft medic able to obtain adequate medication to perform post-intubation sedation for more than a couple of hours in a real life scenario. So, you know, not saying it can't be done, but you really need to plan through long-term downrange, like, okay, well, this is the longest I could actually be sitting on somebody, and do I have the meds to be able to do that? Yeah. So, well, you know, that's, uh, resources are a thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, okay. Evan. I mean, we, we do a lot of ketamine sedation in our ICU, and, you know, for planning purposes, you need to plan for, you know, the, sort of the max expected consumption, which I think, and Evan can, and I can debate this, is going to be one mg per kilogram per hour. You know, that's, we generally start patients at 0.3 to 0.5 mg per kg per hour. But if they're uncomfortable and they're restless and they're fighting the vent, we very rapidly, you know, we'll probably give them bolus of a milligram per kilogram and then turn it up to a mg per kg per hour. So let's say you have a 100 kilogram guy a mig per kg is 100 milligrams per hour, you know, to, for 24 hours. That's 2,400 milligrams per day of ketamine, which is, what is it, 500 milligrams in a bottle, Evan? Yeah, it's yeah, that's so about five right. bottles of ketamine per day um, to sedate that patient at the maximum level. 
Um, and, and, you know, if, you, if you're planning for 24 to 72 hours in terms of, you know, um, slot type of scenarios where you've got denied, you know, denied evacuation and you're going up to, you know, there's 15 bottles of ketamine that you're, you pre, that you're, that you're 18 Delta or, you know, equivalent um, soft medic would need. That's a lot. And that, yeah. and that just assumes one, and that's patient. one patient, right? And so even if you only have one, but you're in that austere resource limited scenario and you're treating one patient, that's a bit of a gamble to completely burn through your stockpile, just taking care of that one patient. Cause it assumes that you're not going to have anybody else. Right. Care. And that doesn't account so, for anybody's pain requirements, you know, other casualties with pain, your pet, your patient who needs bump, bumps of something for pain, you know, that is a bare minimum just to sedate that patient, you know, m- mind you maximum dose. Um, you know, although people do dose higher, you can go up to two, but you know, one, it seems to do the trick in my experience. So that's one patient maximum dose, you know, per day with nothing else, as Evan said. Um, so it's a lot, not, not to say it can't be done. Yeah. Right. You know, um, but, but you're going to have to reset the mentality of the people who are issuing the drugs and approving uh, approving the release of dr- drugs, you know, at the medical oversight level. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, in the, in the refresher course where I teach, uh, that's definitely a, a huge, it's a, it's a big problem is guys very uncomfortable setting up a drip. So mm-hmm. they will, they will hold on to that push dose for as long as they possibly can until they're kind of forced into it just because of other interventions that they have to do and having a guy um, just dedicated to pushing bumps of whatever um, is untenable. And like, we need everybody's hands working. Um, right. So they're kind of forced to now set up a drip and they are really uncomfortable doing the math, even though they've been shown multiple times uh, actually doing it. So and if you stick, it's, with, it's a huge resource. Sorry, Dennis. I was saying, if you stick with, a, yeah, go ahead. If you stick with a push dose strategy, then your consumption goes up by a factor of two or three, right? Because ketamine's, uh, you know, yep. effective uh, effective um, duration of action is somewhere between twenty and thirty minutes. And if you're if you're giving a sedation, a procedural dose of of ketamine as a push IV, um, um every 20 or 30 minutes, then that's a hundred, you know, then that's two to 300 milligrams an hour, not just 100. Right. And that's also assuming you don't just mentally say, I want to have this guy sedated two megs per kg per hour, you know, and just right. max it out. I don't want to have to deal with him waking up. And that's right? fine too. So your, your stuff burns and it's, a, it's a safe, it's a safe dose, but it's also kind of a wasteful one. And so that's another area that guys are not very comfortable with is actually hitting the mark of this is exactly the point that I of sedation that I want. It's kind of, um, you know, he doesn't feel pain as bad. The other side is he is completely snowed and doesn't even blink anymore. Right. And 
while we're on the topic of meds and resources, the other thing to keep in mind is RSI typically necessitates the use of a paralytic. And mm-hmm. if we're looking at shelf-stable paralytics, probably the best choice is rocuronium because succinylcholine has to be refrigerated. Rocuronium is also typically refrigerated, but you can keep it at room temperature. And Doug, maybe you remember off the top of your head, but I can't remember whether it's 30 days or 90 days, but somewhere in that time frame at quote unquote room temperature, you can maintain rock. So that's probably the only game in town, but it's worth noting that your time of paralysis with rocuronium is going to be anywhere from probably 30 minutes to an hour, depending on exactly what dose you use, um, which is an awful long time, especially if all you've got is a BVM and somebody starts shooting at you. uh, It's kind of inconvenient to be like, uh, hey, dude, I know I just paralyzed you and you can't breathe on yourself, but I need to take cover and return fire. So, I mean, you really own that guy once you've pushed rock for a reasonable time frame in terms of, you know, how breathing for them. And, you know, that room temperature, I strongly doubt that some of the extreme environments in which we work, um, I, I doubt anybody's studied the longevity of rock. So it's also a question of, do you have access to refrigeration, um, at least intermittently? Mm-hmm. And are you willing to take a vial of that medication out and then burn it every time you've kept it outside the fridge for more than X number of hours? So that's another resource issue. If you're on any kind of lengthy deployment, you need to have access to refrigeration. Um, so, you know, just talking to some of the, the, the JMAO guys, um, they say that they use uh, Vecuronium because it's lawfulized and dried and they don't need to really uh, have any kind of special storage until they actually need it. So is that a, a, a more viable option for pre-hospital? So, so the reason I don't love VEC for this particular application is it's going to have an even slower time of onset than rock. So it's going to come on really slowly over a couple of minutes. And if you're an experienced airway manager and so on, and you know you think that that's reasonable under the circumstances, that's different. But now we're also using a a less optimal, because I don't think there's anybody in the US and outside of austere environments who's saying that, you know, VEC is your ideal initial RSI drug um, for most patients. So you're using a suboptimal agent due to its shelf stability. If you're somebody who's not doing this all the time, you've just made it even just a little bit harder. So I think that's something to take into account. Um, is there, so, you know, we have sucks, rock, Beck. I mean, other than, you know, that little consideration of the guy can't breathe anymore and Mm -hmm. you have to actually travel uh, by hand, um, that small inconvenience, uh, are there other things that can go wrong just from the, the drug? So I know from what I've known, um, like malignant hypothermia is one of them. Uh, are there other considerations? I mean, you know, I've seen one confirmed case of malignant hypothermia in my long ICU career and a second that might have, we treated for malignant hypothermia, but weren't sure it, it might have been something else. It, it's a vanishingly rare complication of, of succinylcholine. But I think, I think succinylcholine's um, uh, you know stability issues rule it out as, as a drug you know for this use anyway. Um, you know my my 
hundred percent um, induction regimen is rocuronium and ketamine. Um, a mig, one to two mm-hmm. mgs per kg of ketamine um, to sedate them. Once I see that they're you know you know sedated, they've got nystagmus or they've got the ketamine stare, um, then um, then rocuronium. Uh, usually on the light side, usually no more than one mg per kg. And sometimes I do as little as 0.5 mg per kg. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what I use every time. I'm in hundreds of airways like that and, and, and high risk, not because it's a high risk airway, but high risk because it's an uh, unstable patient. And I, I, I feel the most okay. comfortable with that from a stability of patient through the, um, through a destabilizing procedure. Okay. I mean, yeah. And I, I, yeah, go ahead, Evan. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, and I, I don't want to steal Doug Sunder cause he's probably better at describing this than I am, but I mean, ultimately, even if you're choosing smart drugs, so there are some induction agents and some sedation agents that are going to be more hemodynamically neutral than mm-hmm. others. So we all like ketamine because it's, you know, relatively speaking, hemodynamically neutral, but any patient that you take from, you know, oh, crap, I'm dying, and send them to Margaritaville, uh, you're going to blunt their endogenous catecholamine response, which is going to take a shocky patient and make them shockier. So that's one of the big things that you need to expect. If I am forced to intubate a shocky patient for whatever reason, whether it's a trauma patient, whether it's a sick medical patient, I am expecting them to become more shocky. I am expecting their blood pressure to Mm -hmm. take a dump. I'm immediately cycling my blood pressure and usually I'm doing a lot of things, whether it's, you know, just resuscitation with fluids or blood is appropriate. In many cases, I'm hanging a presser, even if they don't really need it yet, I'm kind of putting it on at a homeopathic rate so that I can quickly up titrate as I need it. I'm mixing up some push dose epi and having it in my pocket and available. I'm doing a lot of things because I'm expecting them to get worse as soon as I do that. And the medications, even if they're well chosen, are a big part of that. Yeah. And you you make a good point just listening to you describe how you prepare. You know, you're preparing in an environment where you've got continuous blood pressure monitoring. You've got automatic blood pressure monitoring where all you need to do is reset the frequency. You know, if you've got some guy kneeling, you know, if you've got your 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 shooter or your your demo guy, you know, that you've cross trained on vitals kneeling by your side trying to get a blood pressure every you know two minutes. Um, that's not going to be necessarily as reliable data because, because if a patient, you know, crashes, uh, hemodynamically with induction, when you take away his sympathetic response, that catecholamine drive, um, you're, you're, it's going to happen quickly and you're going to need to know it quickly, um, and absolutely be ready, you know, and, and when I, when I intubate, shocky patients or shocky patients. In fact, when I intubate every patient, there's a, a, um, there's a push dose presser in the room. We can always return it to the med cart, but I'd rather have it and not need it and need it and not have it. And if they really are shocky on intubation, I will have an assistant with that presser in their hand by the IV ready to push on my command. Yeah. I mean, I'll, is that? it's, it's not uncommon. I'll drop an art line just so I can get continuous monitoring yeah as in anticipation of the drop so that I'm not even cycling it every minute or every two minutes, but I can see in real time as their blood pressure drops. And I'll do that as a preparatory step for a patient who needs an airway, but I have a few minutes to tune them up before I do it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, is that just the effect of 
the paralytic or can any of these drugs do that? Oh, it's sedation. It's like, like Evan said, you know, Just, once, once you take a patient who's in fight or flight and you take that fight or flight away, um, then you decrease their sympathetic tone, which is, which is, um, which is tightening is constricting their peripheral blood pressure, blood vessels. I'm sorry, you know, sending blood to the vital organs, the brain, um, and, um, and, and maintaining a blood pressure, you know, once you take that away, everything relaxes, you know, then, then you drop your blood pressure and, and deep sedation can do it just as well as a paralytic. Um, the other thing is that, um, endotracheal intubation actually stimulates a vagus response, which is a parasympathetic response, which also, you know, it, it works against fight or flight and drops your blood pressure. So just the just the stimulation of the blade against the epiglottis alone stimulates the vagus nerve and can cause hypotension. Most of the, and most of the paralytics inherently, the way that they cause hypotension is indirect. Most of them are fairly hemodynamically neutral on their face. It's not that they're paralyzing like your sympathetic tone and causing your blood vessels to relax. Mm -hmm. The biggest issue with the paralytics in terms of hemodynamics of taking an airway is that they obligate you to positive pressure ventilation. Mm -hmm. And that's the other piece that you need to be aware of here. So you are taking somebody who is pulling massive, you know, negative inspiratory pressure to pull air into their chest. And then you're switching them over to positive pressure when you're intubating them because your paralytic necessitates that you breathe for them and breathe for them for the duration of the paralysis at a minimum. So when you switch somebody to positive pressure ventilation, that increases their intrathoracic pressure, which in turn uh, increases the pressure on low pressure structures such as the vena cava and the right side of the heart. Mm -hmm. So that's going to decrease cardiac preload, which in turn is going to decrease cardiac output. And that is predictably going to worsen shock in somebody who's already in shock. So positive pressure ventilation by itself can take a shocky patient and make them more shocky, which is, again, we put the advantage crike is that if you have a patient with maxillofacial trauma who needs an airway, but doesn't necessarily have a respiratory problem, uh, I can crike that patient potentially even with just topical anesthesia if the patient's really cooperative or maybe just, you know, some mild systemic pain relief combined with topical anesthesia and let the patient continue to breathe on their own, not only through the procedure, but subsequently and never use positive pressure ventilation, except maybe as part of confirming tube placement for a couple of breaths. And that is actually, it's funny, the procedure that makes them bleed is actually probably more hemodynamic and neutral. <laughs> and that's a really important hmm. point. Yeah. Now, you guys almost got me. You almost convinced me. But this one simple uh, kind of truth is that I see, you know, EMS, they intubate, they don't crike, they don't mm -hmm. have the resources, right? They have a truck. Um, you know, you see, you know, different NGOs, docs working in different NGOs. They're also resource constrained, but they're still intubating. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm at least as good as the EMS provider, I think. Um, why is it that they're being pushed to intubate, but, you know, people like me, um, we're told, hey, just crike. Because they're going to be brought up very valid points, definitely. Because they're going to be in a hospital ahead, in no more than a couple, a couple three hours, and the hospital is going to have all the all the sedation resources that they need. 
you know, as far as the NGOs go, it'd actually be interesting to have somebody on, you know, from an NGO with that type of experience to talk to them about, you know, what they do for sedation. I, I don't have a lot of experience in that, in that world. Yeah. What I can say for the pre-hospital providers in the EMS world is typically they'll quote something like 10 innovations a year in terms of maintaining the proficiency with the actual skill set. Um, I think a caveat to that is I'm a little bit leery of saying somebody who just goes to the OR and physically puts a tube into a stable patient a couple of times a year is really prepared to do what we're talking about. We're because uh, hopefully it's become apparent from all of this conversation that the, the technical aspects of just placing a piece of plastic in somebody's trachea, assuming they don't have some sort of, you know, significant trauma or what have you. Um, that's not the hard part. The hard part is dealing with the sick, unstable patient and trying to secure their airway. So I have a little bit of hesitation saying, well, just going to the OR and physically, you know, having the anesthesiologist do all the drugs and the patient's really stable and you just put the tube in a couple times and you're like, okay, I'm good to go, you know, T for trained. Um, so, but I guess what I get to and what I told, you know, when I was a battalion surgeon with my last medics is I told them, if you understand all the things that we've talked about and have sought out, you know, I had one medic who went to a difficult airway course with me and did all kinds of additional airway training to get experience and experience, not just with the technical aspects of the procedure of just, you know, again, using a laryngoscope, but with understanding the meds, understanding the physiology. And I was more than happy to sign off and say, yeah, if you want the ability to RSI, I will sign off on you having those drugs because I'm confident that you now understand. Because I'm not saying that there are no situations where a soft medic would be appropriate to RSI someone. It's just you have to really think through all of these limitations and these downstream issues. And the vast majority of the time for the TCCC environment, the answer is going to be crike. I mean, those are those are really good points, um, and and I 100% agree that you know. Going to the OR with anesthesia for a, a an elective surgery or a planned surgery is about as um, a, about as controlled as um, induction and endotracheal intubation can be, and, and and every other environment I I call a hostile environment, right? Emergency surgery, you know, trauma patient that goes straight to the OR. Uh, dissected aorta that goes straight to the AOR, um, and ev everything pre-hospital and everything tactical that we're talking about, even the ICU, right, is is what I call a, ho a hostile environment where you have to be prepared for the complications. That much said, I do think that, you know, you can train that, you know, I think you can use simulations, um, you know, whether, um, um, you know, mannequins or, or other simulation models, as long as you've got a good proctor who's really driving the complications. Um, you, you know, you know, we, you place the endotracheal tube and as, 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 as soon as the blade goes in, it's like blood pressure is, you know, you know, 90 over 50, blood pressure is 80 over 40, blood pressure 70 over 30, almost like that until, you know, to force somebody to like really jump on it and act quickly you know, make and make your make the students sweat and make them panic a little bit and make them realize that this this really could happen. You do enough reps of that in training, um, you're going to come close to 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 replicating that experience in real life. I mean, wouldn't you think, Evan? 
Yeah, I mean, and then it just comes down to a time, a question of budgeting training mm -hmm. time. And this was the other piece that I would always tell my medics is that, you know, if you wanted to tell me, if you're an 18 Delta and you wanted to tell me that you wanted to go to some hospital somewhere and learn to drill burr holes or whatever, you know, do, you know, laparotomies and all of these things. The question is one, you know, how much training time are you going to have to devote to the initial training? And what is the yield? What is the likelihood that this is going to produce better patient outcomes? You having had this training versus not having had it. And then what is also the additional sustainment cost? How much are you going to have to spend time sustaining this skill to be able to continue to do it safely and have that additional marginal benefit? And we all know that right now, again, I can at least speak for, you know, the, the SF world, it is a challenge to get adequate quality sustainment training. Um, guys don't always get the opportunity to train on medical skills uh, once they get out of their initial course. And, you know, two weeks every two years, four weeks every four years is not a lot of time. Um, if that was all I was getting as an ER physician, then I would be unemployable at most hospitals mm -hmm. um, because I couldn't get credentialed. So it's, it's not a question of, do I think an 18 Delta or a SOCOM or what have you can do this skill and can get trained at the point? It's that how many circumstances are they likely to run into where it really actually is the better choice? Because like I said, the vast majority of the time in the TCCC environment, in my view, Crike is just objectively the better core choice for me. Um, depending on my resource availability and so on, uh, let alone, and I do this, you know, more frequently. Um, but then it's a question of, is it worth the training time cost and everything else to get them that additional skill? Or could it be better spent, you know, training something else that will have better yield? Yeah, I think guys kind of forget, you know, they focus on the skill, right? We kind of forget like, you know, EMS, you have help in a hospital. You have help. You're not, they don't just throw you in the room with a, you know, somebody that's been hit by a truck and say, good luck. Mm -hmm. Right. But that is essentially what happens, you know, in our job, you have to maintain situational awareness, not only of the patient, but also of the situation unfolding around you so that both you and the patient can stay safe. You have to render all treatments to the patient not just solely focused on, you know, the the space above his shoulders, mm -hmm. um, you know, like in, like the CRNA or anesthesiologist. That's essentially what they focus on. Yes, they also help with the blood pressure, but that's their zone. That's all they have to focus on is keeping this guy alive long enough for the surgery to be over with. So they are they have the the bandwidth to focus on all the, the nuances and and do all the different types of intubation and uh, play with all the drugs and, and things like that. So they have that that focus so they can be that much that good at it. Right. So um, I think that's just one one area that people it's kind of like they have their eyes on the prize. I want this capability, but you like to your point, Evan, can't maintain it you don't have the bandwidth to be able to do deal with it 
Um, oh, is one, that true? One, oh, sorry. I'm going to let Evan respond, and then I, I want to go off in a different yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, that's really what it all boils down to is it's the the difficult truth of soft medicine is that most of our, our soft medical providers, honestly, even the docs put into the, the battalion surgeon roles, um, medicine is the side hustle. Medicine, mm-hmm. you know, shooter first, doc. And you have so many demands on your training time and bandwidth And then you're expected to have all of these amazing capabilities on top of that in the medical realm and somehow sustain them despite being only given, you know, scraps of time here and there to work on it. Um, And that's when, you know, I, I remember when I graduated the 18 Delta course and thinking about, wow, I got so much more training than a typical paramedic, man, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. But, you know, if you look at the, curves of competence of a paramedic, especially one involved in things like critical care transport or so on, who that's what they do for a mm-hmm. living. I mean, this is this you know a, a little bit of a tangent, but there was a, a study that was used to justify the uh, critical care flight paramedic program on the military side, where they looked at an active duty dust-off unit in Iraq that was replaced by a California, I can't remember whether it was guard or reserve unit, and the California unit, all of them were critical care flight paramedics and the active duty side, they didn't have any. And they swapped out and then the California unit had better outcomes. So they said, wow, we need to get our guys as critical care flight paramedic training because they had. Now, I would argue that most of what those guys were doing were not critical care flight paramedic skills. The difference, I think, was less likely about the actual training and certification, but about the fact that when those reservist guys weren't deployed, guess mm-hmm. what they did for a living? They were critical care flight paramedics flying every single day, taking care of sick patients and getting hands on. And that was their day job. And then coming out, they were basically doing the same thing they were doing versus most U.S. medics struggle to get reps with actual real sick patients. And we all know that, you know, our medics in the hospitals are not being allowed to practice at the, you know, full extent of their capabilities when they do get these rotations. So, you know, it's a, it's a real struggle to say, you know, oh, well, you can totally, if they let paramedics do this, you know, well, paramedics are doing it. A lot of them are doing this every day. And so it's not just about the initial training. It's about, you know, what do you do for a living? And that's a real challenge that SOF, I still think SOF hasn't come up with all of the answers for in terms of how do you have people who are really capable of this, you know, prolonged field care is a horrible Mm -hmm. problem set. And really, we need like, you know, somebody like Doug, who's a critical care, that's what he does for a living, to be able to do it. Now you're, you're ramping up the difficulty from what Doug already mm-hmm. does into something in an even worse environment and more resource limited. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to Evan's, to Evan's point, you know, when I was a battalion surgeon, we probably had the most generous pre-mission training um, medical pre-mission training mm-hmm. program, um, I, I would say in all of soft, not, not to brag, but just because, you know, we had a, a commander and a, and a sergeant major that kind of recognized the importance of it based on their history and based on where we were going. And they gave us a week, you know, and you, you go to other, you know, um, other units and other uh, command environments. And, and, you know, that's, and when I mean, it was a week for the entire, um, for the entire team. 
right, with with non-medic lanes and medic lanes, and then a, a brought together for you know a really complex thirty to seventy-two hour um, field exercise. Um, and, you know, you go to other units, and sometimes you get pushback about that amount of time, and that's just one week, right? To to try to brush up all of these, you know, highly complex skills um, for highly complex situations. Um, the point I wanted to make um, that's kind of a tangent, I'd be curious about Evan's um, opinion of this too, is yes, you know, you can teach anybody to put a piece of plastic down, down, down a throat. Um, and, and, and that's not the most difficult part of the whole equation. But, but you also um, in these unstable patients, you want to optimize your chances of getting that piece of plastic down the throat the first time as quickly as possible. And to that end, in our intensive care, you know, hostile airway environment, we exclusively intubate using video laryngoscopes um, because, you know, there's been data plus and minus, but I think in general, the data is now favoring a higher um, first pass, first um, attempt success rate with video laryngoscopy, especially in inexperienced users. Um, and, um, you know, that would be something that I'd advocate for. And I know that we have them in soft, you know, we, we still have the Rangers, right, Evan? Yeah, that's what they're fielding in the tax sets right now. Um, and, you know, they're fine. They, they work. And, you know, I, I tend to agree with you that, for most people who have been brought up on it, like if you were really raised almost exclusively on DL, then you may have a higher success rate with DL for many or most patients. But it's definitely something where if you, especially if you're coming at both fresh, I agree with you. I think VL is the more flexible procedure, especially if you get into, you know, physiologically diff or physically difficult mm -hmm. airways, you know, whether it's obesity and so on, it gives you a lot of options. Now that's not going to be an issue. Most of our, uh, barring, you know, that maxillofacial trauma, um, the only caveat I'll give is I think in a soiled airway situation, unless you have very good suction mm -hmm. management, uh, DL is going to be safer mm -hmm. than VL. Um, if you're dealing with a very bloody airway or lots of emesis or so on, keeping that camera clean uh, is a real skill. And if it's something anybody's interested in, you can look up salad technique um, on uh, there's a bunch of really great YouTube videos for that. But managing VL in a soiled airway requires, we get back to that, it requires good suction and good suction technique, which a lot of these folks aren't going to have. And dialing back, the other thing just, mentioning is if you think you're going to pre-oxygenate with a Soros, that's probably also not right. the right answer. So, you know, in terms of resources, you know, again, you get back to the probably need at least a D cylinder um, or something like it for the, you know, pre-oxygenation slash denitrogenation uh, phase of the procedure. So it's just another thing that you're probably not carrying in your aid bag um, and limits the applicability of the procedure. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, I guess what I'm kind of gathering context is everything. Um, so would it be presumptuous for me to say if either of you guys were in my environment, would you be criking or would you want to intubate? 
I will, cr- I make no bones about the fact that if I'm operating in your environment, I'm cracking most of the time. I am only intubating if I've run that whole checklist of, do I have all of these other resources available that I need to be able to do the procedure safely? Do I have the downstream stuff to be able to sustain the patient after I've intubated them successfully? Um, if I can answer all of those things, yes, and I have a pretty defined timeline and I'm resource rich, sure, I'll intubate. But most of those conditions are not going to be met most of the time in the soft medics environment. Uh, okay. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intubate because that's what I have you know, the, the most experience by far with uh, and be prepared to crike as a backup. But also, if I'm going into your environment, I'm going to prepare. You know, I'm going to um, prepare my loadout. Um, you know, I'm going to go, you know, sit through the mission briefs, get mission, do mission analysis, figure out, you know, um, kind of do the worst case scenario, max number of casualties, max number of days that I would need to, um, keep intubated, uh, and build my loadout accordingly. And, you know, as a, you know, as a critical care doc, I'm probably not going to get too much pushback if I ask for, you know, 5,000 milligrams of ketamine. Right. That's true. Um, but, so, but again, I guess my know, follow up to you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Again, is you know, go. Um, the best fluid to use is the one you have. The best area to place is the one you feel most comfortable with. Because by far the by far the most important part of, of airway management is is to get a definitive airway in as quickly as possible with the least number of attempts attempts because that's going to optimize your your hemodynamics and minimize your risks. Yeah. So kind of my follow-up is to you, Doug, um, since you wanted to, it would intubate in that environment. If I hand you a patient Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, I decided they needed an airway and I criked them, Mm -hmm. are you comfortable with that? Like like, like managing? You're not thinking less of me. No, no, absolutely not. I'm I'm thinking... um, you know, here's a guy who recognized a, a clinical situation, used his judgment, um, executed um, the procedure he felt um, best trained and most comfortable with, um, and handed me a patient that was more stable than um, if he'd either not recognized it, not taken the airway, or, um, you know, subjected him to a high-risk procedure that he didn't feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I... I kind of forgot about when you're talking about prepping for the field or prepping for whatever environment you're in. Um, I do notice a lot of medics carrying the wrong size tubes. I see a lot of sevens. I see a lot of eights in their kits and they fail to realize you need to have small, you have to have smaller uh, tubes. Like the average size adult male, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken is a 6.0, the average female is a five and a half. Uh, size tube so can i do i believe that they will make that seven or make that eight fit yeah i'm pretty sure they'll make it fit um however they're going to do a lot of damage along the way i think that's a great point dennis that it's a that's a really good point and it's something that i've been kind of hitting on for a while now is a lot of guys get used to the fact that um they kind of, there's a presumed male patient because most of our soft operators are male. But if you've ever forgetting even, you know, women in more operator roles, um, if you've ever deployed as part of a soft headquarters unit or so on, then there are women on the battlefield 
and that's often forgotten. And right now, most of our Crite kits in, uh, or all of them that I've seen feature a 6.0 tube that's probably going to be a very tight fit in the average adult U.S. woman. Um, so very few medics that I'm aware of, very few docs that I'm aware of are carrying smaller uh, tubes so that they can potentially get that tube into the cricothyroid membrane of a female patient. Yeah, not to mention, you know, you're talking about uh, burn comp complications from burns, um, you know, uh, just trauma, whatever, like swelling, hematomas, things like that, mechanical things that are constricting that airway. It's going to make it even harder uh, to fit even the 602. So the, in part of your kind of pace plan or your mismade setup in your kit, you have to have smaller tubes. You can't just, you know, order what you trained on for intubation and stick that tube in like, well, I can do both with this. So I think that, I mean, to me, I, summarizing some of that and bringing it back. So you talk about the, the ruck truck house plane model, and now we're talking about Anything from, you know, D cylinders, maybe a better suction device. We're talking about all of these medications. I, I think the scenario of throwing a laryngoscope in an aid bag and having that be uh, a viable airway along with a couple of tubes, that's a very, very narrow. The, the only patient where that's realistic is probably an expectant patient. Um, yeah. where you're not having to do much. So realistically, if we're talking about RSI, really you're exclusively talking about kind of house plane, maybe if you have a very well-stocked CCP at like, you know, where you're going to be just loading them up and putting them on a helicopter. But it's probably not even, I mean, if you really plan for it, you could make it truck. But, you know, most of the time, that's not where this is going to be. These, if you're talking about RSI, that's not where it's going to be most appropriate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is intubation really, like they say, it's, you know, it's least invasive. Like what is, what is the big benefit of intubating versus criking? Doug. Well, you know, in, in, oh, Doug, go. Oh. sorry. Um, I think the, there are two big benefits. One is that if you can visualize a tube going through the vocal cords, um, you know, a hundred percent, you know, a thousand percent that you have a definitive airway. And there are, yeah. uh, and unless you, yeah. And there's, there's no such, um, confirmation, positive confirmation for, uh, um, a crike placement or a, tra a tracheostomy placement um, in the field. Um, and, and there are reports, you know, where people think that they're in the crike and they've actually just dissected into the tissue planes and they're ventilating the tissue planes. Um, rare, but in uh, a high stress situation, it, it, it can happen and has happened. Um, the other thing is, you know, you're not mucking about with a scalpel where you have um, arteries, you know, just to the left of you, just to the right of you, and can develop, you know, some, you know, not trivial bleeding complications. Um, I don't think that's a reason not to crike uh, when the situation demands it. 
but I think that um, endotracheal intubation has a couple positives in terms of, of um, certainty of placement and reduc reduction of bleeding risk um, that should keep it in the table. Again, you know, I go back to where we started this podcast in the right environment. You know, for me, the right environment probably would mm -hmm. be the point of injury, and I would pack. You know, I I could. I could I could pack for induction and endotracheal intubation even with a small video laryngoscope um, in in a in a small package that I would feel comfortable carrying. I, but I'd probably carry less bullets than the other guys. Um, uh, yeah. And um, to your point about endotracheal tube size, that was interesting. Um, I have never placed an endotracheal tube smaller than a seven O. And that was in like the tiniest, most emaciated, you know, patient, uh, adult patient. Um, even in, in airways that, you know, were starting to maybe become a little bit edematous, um, it's always been a 7.5 or an 8.0. And that was the way I was trained at shock trauma. You know, um, I, I had an anesthesiologist who mm -hmm. was one of my faculty who said, do you really think that extra half millimeter is going to impact your ability to get the airway? And one of the reasons we go for the largest tube possible, at least in the hospital environment, but also in the pre-hospital environment makes a difference, is it improves your ability to suction the patient. Number one, improves your ability to suction the patient. Um, too small an airway can increase your airway resistance. Um, just because it's rigid plastic, mm -hmm. it is not flexible like the trachea. Um, and, um, and then in the hospital environment, it affects our ability to put bronchoscopes down there and do diagnostics. I, I think yeah. he was mostly talking about for the crike itself, because oh, okay. then it's not necessarily, we're talking about like the, because there was a study and the one I was referring to with women, there was a study on the average cricothyroid membrane height in adult female trauma patients in the US. And it was something like the, the mid high fives. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm um, so it's a question of what's the, it's not a question of tracheal diameter. It's more a question of how much, you know, tissue deformity are you going to have to achieve to make a new orifice okay. to get your tube in. And yeah, and uh, as a yeah. backup, it's always nice to have small endotracheal tubes like fives and sixes because they can they can be emergency crike tubes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you're talking about like airway resistance, so potentially later on, you know, you do have to end up having to ventilate. I mean, the difference between an ET tube that's like a, you know, a foot long or 14, 16 inches long um, versus a you know, a trach or a crike tube that's like four inches long, like there's got to be some kind of benefit as far as airway resistance and ease of mechanical ventilation, short, uh, decreasing the amount of dead space, things like that. Not, that yeah, true? I mean, oh, before we go move on, I, I got to give a shout out to Sean Keenan, oh. who's been following along and, um, and sending a couple of texts. Thanks for listening in, Sean, and uh, appreciate your comments. Now you can go, Evan. No, I was saying, yeah, I mean, <laughs> certainly airway resistance, like we said, there, you know, the bigger diameter tube and everything is going to give you advantage, especially if they're going to be intubated for a while and you start to get the microfilm building up on the inside of the tube over time. Um, you know, that can definitely be an issue. Um, moving back though on the, the confirming placement, this is another bug that I want to put out since we're on the topic is confirming placement should be part of the crike procedure that you train with your Emma. Ideally, um, a minimum, like usually my crike kits, I'll throw a color change around at least, um, in the kit in case I don't have an Emma or in case I only have one Emma. Um, 
you need, you know, during, under stress, you're, you will devolve to your, your level of training. Uh, mm-hmm. You will do what you have muscle memory to do. And what I have seen, even in a simulated stress environment, is guys will talk a good game about confirming tube placement on crikes with their Emmas or so on when they, you know, were out doing kind of a tabletop exercise in a very low stress environment. And all the guys will remember to verbalize that. And the minute I put them into even a simulated tactical environment, that never happens. Because when guys mm-hmm. are training the procedure, that's not, part, it's not a trained step in the procedure. It's something that they talk about at the end. So if I could put a plug out there that even if you don't want to, you know, get your Emma dirty or whatever, even if it's just putting the little disposable plastic piece on the tube as sort of a mental placeholder of this is part of the procedure. I am doing this step now that I've got this into confirmed tube placement that should be drilled in part of the muscle memory of the Craig procedure. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Fair point. And I think, you know, the, the procedure, whether you're talking about intubation or crike, it's not done until it's secured. You check placement, and now it's secured. Now is the time to go ahead and move on, not just because you stuck the tube in the right spot. And that's another thing I see a lot of guys doing is they'll they'll place the crike, they might confirm placement, and then they move on. And they're just letting the, the balloon is not enough to maintain your placement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Evan, one of the tra- uh, one of the training scars I actually observed in an exercise a while back with crike placement was, um, uh, and I don't know if this is a training scar or I don't know if this is the way it's trained because I've been out of uh, you know active duty environment for a minute now. Um, but you know the the guys were driven to t- place an airway. Um, they went for a crike because that was what they felt most comfortable with. Um, and when they went to make the incision, they never prepped the skin. Um, they basically, you know, mm-hmm. stuck a knife through dirty skin into the trachea. Is that something that is trained or, you know, should they be, you know, you know, cleaning alcohol, chlorhexidine, swabbing, you know, I can't think of a surgeon who would make an incision without prepping the skin. What are your thoughts on that? I, oh, I think that, I think that's a, a very fair point. And I'll raise you <laughs> that almost every time I've seen, seen this done in a, simulated and trained scenario. Also, there is never any talk of analgesia or sedation. And people are just going straight for the crike on a patient who in the scenario is perfectly awake and conscious. And it's just like, still here, let me hold you down and cut your throat open. So not Um, even lidocaine. So they don't even not even light. They're not, they're not even talking about lidocaine. They're not even notionalizing. I'm giving, you know, a hundred mics of fentanyl or whatever, you know, I'm giving a, you know, X dose of ketamine. No, they're just going straight and like, all right, I'm going for it, buddy. Here, you know, here's a bullet to bite down on or whatever. Um, and that's not realistic. So I also tell people, if you are going to train for crike, you also need to start training to think about like, okay, I need an airway in a hurry. And let's assume, just like if we were thinking that we had to RSI the patient, we assume this patient's not completely obtunded, at which point, you know, in a field environment, again, that very likely may be an expectant patient at that point. Um, 
then how are you going to manage that patient's pain? And whether it's thinking through, well, how long is it going to take me to do the lidocaine? Um, if I don't already have IV access yet, is it going to be faster for me to get IV access or is it going to be faster to do intramuscular ketamine uh, given the onset time of the intramuscular ketamine versus IV or IO? Um, thinking through all those things, again, as part of the procedure never gets done. So, and to your point, no, it's not an ideal to you know, not clean somebody's neck, especially in a dirty field environment before you're making an incision. And that wouldn't meet standard of care in the US. Um, now, what I always tell my guys is, you know, really, it's your responsibility to know what standard of care is. And then under some circumstances, I mean, I can imagine if the patient is like, you know, peri code, because they don't have an airway, and I can't find chlorhexidine, am I going to cut the neck? Yeah, I'm sure. Cut the neck. Um, but, you know, you should know what actual standard of care is and try as closely as possible to train that. And then if you have to deviate from it, do it consciously and deliberately with an assessment of the risks and benefits. Yeah. That, that yeah, reinforces absolutely. one of the best quotes I've gotten about um, prolonged field care and tactical medicine from a good friend of mine. He used to be Sergeant Major um, in, in one of the JSOC medical environments. He said, you know, the best care to provide in the field environment is um, the standard of hospital care um, in the United States or, or NATO. And we deviate from that standard only because we have to, not because we can. You know, just yep, just because you're in camo in the dirt, you know, doesn't doesn't give you a license to do non-standard medical procedures when when you actually could meet the standard of care. Yeah, we, no, that's just laziness. Right, and we have docs that are guilty, as guilty, if not more guilty, of that than medics. Yeah, I mean, I think guys uh, convince themselves this is a desperate situation. And I don't have time for trivial things. I need to do it. And that can be because they've, um, when it comes to taking an airway period, mm -hmm. uh, I think guys will remember, they'll remember your indications, right? Mm -hmm. But they won't put in their own mind, where is that line in the sand where it crosses over from, uh, this is something that I can do a jaw thrust for, or I can put an NPA in, or I can change his position. And this person needs a crike, like, now it's an emergent, emergent crike, and they let the situation slowly deteriorate mm -hmm. until the point like I have to, like he has stopped breathing, he is no longer able to breathe. Now it's an emergent thing, and now it's time to panic. And I do uh, substandard care versus somebody that they train on it and they think about it and they put at least their own criteria or at least their own line in the sand. SpO2 less than a number, end title, you know, higher than a number. What, whatever the situation that they kind of, the model that they build for themselves, they just don't do it. And they force themselves into a situation where there is no other choice. And now you have to act rapidly and probably unprepared. Dennis, I'll throw it back to you. You know, I asked Evan about the <clears throat> chlorhexidine question and the skin pro prep question for, for yeah. criking, but you know, how is it, how are, how are you guys training in the schoolhouse in terms of, um, you know, you, are you kind of training, you know, how to set up, um, how to prepare for all your possible complications, mm -hmm. how to draw up your meds, how to use your assistance. Um, you know, because this is really, as we, you know, continue this discussion and I think about it, 
Trachea and airway is probably the highest risk procedure that we credential soft medics to do. Um, and and I'm curious to know, and you know, love to come observe sometime. Um, you know how yeah. how they're trained in the schoolhouse because that's that's their initial look at what right looks like. Right. So um, I would say it's definitely phased. Um, if you're talking about SOCOM, um, so I teach in the refresher course, so I get guys a couple of years after they've been practicing. Um, but, you know, their initial introduction to a definitive airway is intubation. There's no drugs. Um, it's a model. Um, they have a quasi-scenario, but everything is still. They're lying on their back. There's no no resistance mm -hmm. to uh, an advanced procedure, right? Um, then they move on uh, where they get to do it on uh, patient simulators. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, no resistance to, uh, to their in interventions. Um, they do definitely clean the skin. They, do, they follow all the steps, mm -hmm. um, but there's no resistance. There's no real need to give uh, sedation or analgesia, so they don't get to practice that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then, we, then they move on further in the course um, into a more of a scenario uh, with uh, with uh, actors, mm -hmm. um, again, generally those patients aren't really in their scenario, aren't really moving around. They kind of just give themselves over to the medic to do what he wants to do. Um, and essentially, from then, uh, you know, we go into more the the eighteen delta realm, surgical patients. They're made to be unconscious with our drugs, so there's no resistance whatsoever. Then they get, they graduate, they move out to the community, and then they eventually they come back to us where um, when they come, in, through, at least through our scenarios I can I can speak to, is I, I walk them through uh, beforehand, you know, setting up your kit. So we walk through mismade, uh, making sure you have multiple airways that, so at least you're prepped for when bad things happen. And then... Uh, we talk about airways and we talk about um, kind of decision points and how you have to build one for yourself. And then I give them a scenario um, with a a very conscious patient who absolutely is a slam dunk for a crike. His body just doesn't know it yet. Mm -hmm. And um, I push them to the point where, like, are you going to do this or are you not going to do this? And, like, you have to use the drugs to take this patient down. You have to position this patient. Where is your suction? Um, all these things. And it definitely, it challenges people. But it sounds like listening to that. But that's at it least. It sounds like listening to that progression that the first time a soft medic will encounter a really complex, what would you call, what did you call it, Evan, a diff difficult airway class that you took your guys to? Yeah, no, we actually went to the difficult airway course. Um, it was in Atlanta. So we went over from Bragg um, with, uh, I took a couple of my medics to it because um, they were interested. In one but it sounds like the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, they encounter that is when they, the 18 deltas come back for SFMS refresher. Is that right? So all the way through like SOCOM, 18 delta initial training, you know, they're seeing artificially optimized and i don't say that you know negative pejoratively but you know patients that are more optimized than they would be in the field environment so is there an opportunity to yeah. kind of um 
in, introduce some of that difficult airway training that Evan took his guys to into the pipeline. Um, so they got graded, on, is. graded on prep, tested on instability, you know, um, forced to use, you know, pick sedation, whether even it's local or, or systemic, you know, as early as the SOCOM phase. Yeah. There, there is, it's just, it takes, I mean, you have to have the right instructors with the right knowledge and willing to, um, essentially willing to risk losing more students because they're not actually ready. Mm. But the, the point of, you know, part of the, the point of the, um, of our rotations is so you get real world experience. Mm-hmm. So you get to see the, you know, the patient who needs an airway, but you've given him a bunch of drugs and now he vomits um, because he ate, you know, four Big Macs before you arrived. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't really get to see that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of their opportunity to see that. And it's, and it's hit and miss if you actually see it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, and that gets back to my standpoint of the, the one thing you can teach a monkey to run an algorithm if it's purely algorithmic, if it's, you know, and the basics of TCCC are a very basic algorithm um, that you can train your knuckle draggers to do. But when we start talking about prolonged field care, critical care in an austere environment, the only, it, there's no algorithm complex enough to include everything that mm-hmm. you need. And the only way to do that is with judgment. And the only way you get judgment is by experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's the real challenge here. And again, we come back to the, like, yes, we could train people to do this and, you know, we can prepare these environments, but um, do we have the time and resources? And is that what we want to spend Mm -hmm. them on? Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, taking an airway on an unstable patient in general ideally should be done by somebody who has seen unstable patients frequently and seen airways in unstable mm-hmm. patients frequently. And that's just not something that with the limited timelines that we have either in the initial training or subsequently, you know, my, I graduated from emergency medicine residency with another 18 Delta and we looked at each other and jokingly, I can't remember which one of us said, I finally feel like I'm a fully qualified 18 Delta. <laughs> and, <laughs> You know, after four years of medical school and three years of emergency medicine residency training of seeing patients, you know, six days a week and so on, I finally felt like I could do all of the things that I was theoretically responsible for as an 18 Delta. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I had these training scars in my mind when I graduated the course. I thought all airways were really like the, you know, can't oxygenate, can't ventilate scenario where like crashing patients. And if I look over my practice, you know, I take airways with a reasonable degree of frequency. And even in trauma scenarios, those are usually the, like, it's the minority of patients where I truly need to crash an airway. There are very few situations where it's like, I do not have time to optimize a patient and do all of these other things prior to the Mm -hmm. airway. And I just think that's so much more important when you're talking about the RSI and the meds and so on versus crike. And it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing what you can do with topicalization. Just this week, I had my residents nasotracheally innovate me. Um, I've got a great video of it. Uh, (laughs) It's amazing what you can do with lidocaine in the right place. 
right. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to give them confidence that they could really do it. So, you know, do they have that confidence now? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, they do. I mean, they, it was, uh, it was really uncomfortable though. Like uh, having a large yeah. ET tube shoved up your nose is not the most fun I've had. It's not the worst thing I've, I've done to me in training, but it's not the most, fun. you know, we've been talking about training yeah. pr pretty much the entire podcast. And one of the areas we ha haven't really talked about training because we've been focusing on the medics is, you know, the role one providers, the battalion surgeons, the battalion PAs who in, you know, the, the strategic and tactical environments that we're preparing for, um, you know, of, um, um, forward of the line of troops operations and, and, um, I don't want, it, it, you know, the role ones will be there in soft elements and those providers, you know, are going to basically be asked to become emergency and critical care physicians for maybe even longer than the PFC period. Um, and where are they getting their training mm -hmm. and, and skills and skill right. and skill sustainment? It's but a huge Doug, problem. If we let them, tell you from recent experience. Yeah. What's that, Dennis? Yeah. Like, but I mean, I mean if we let you guys go, who's going to build the PowerPoint that tells me what the vaccination status is? I'm, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to take the bait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take the bait. Well, if there's an opportunity to, you know, contribute to some difficult airway educational materials, some, you know, non-threatening, you know, not non-evaluated modules at the schoolhouse at both the SOCOM and the 18 Delta level. You know, I'm just down the road and I'm, I'm happy to help because I think probably different than Evan's practice in, in the ICU, I would say the majority of airways we place are in unstable patients. You know, our, our goal is to get the airways out. Yeah. And if, if they're going in, probably something is going wrong and we don't have a lot of time to react. Um, we still, we still optimize them as best we can and we still prep, but we, I think we have, we have a lot more instability where we're pushing epi or pushing phenylephrine, um, and calcium. Um, don't forget that as an, as a nice yeah. hemodynamic adjunct in an emergency. Um, so like I said, I've got yeah. four years experience at, at WVU in that environment. If I can use it to help the community, I'm happy to do it. No, well, definitely appreciate it. Um, well, thank you guys very much. We've been cruising along for hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. You're for welcome. Hey, and uh, congrats on that sub five hour century, Evan. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. Now I got to get it a little lower to All be competitive. Right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, um, I'll just be envious. I'll just be happy to get through a hundred miles in, in, in a 24 hour cycle. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. See you guys. All right. That's it for today's podcast. Cheers. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out.